Thank you, men. What an incredible song. We uh, continue through examining the life of some great men who were just as human as we are. And Jacob's family, though he was a patriarch, was just as human and full of frailties as we are. And we need to study lives of great people because we watch the process they go through of, of becoming who God wants them to be. But the ultimate being, in the philosophical sense, capital B, only begins when we're in heaven. But we're always becoming in this earth, moving toward what God wants us to be. One of the greatest things you'll ever find in life is true peace. And we need that because we need to have the peace of God, but we also need to have peace with our brothers and sisters. We need to have peace with our God. And I want to think today about peace with our brothers and sisters because this passage, the 30th chapter of Genesis, is about sibling rivalry. If you want true peace, don't look down on others with a disdain. If you desire true peace, don't look up on others with jealousy. And, and certainly don't look within looking for a scheme to get what you want. All three of these are frailties of the human existence that we go after so easily. Instead, look to the Lord. Trust Him with your life. And you'll find that true peace always. The question for us today is, how can we learn to live in peace even when we feel like killing each other? We can get frustrated and angry and anxious. I grew up and I never heard the phrase, yay, it didn't exist when I was growing up, road rage. But now road rage is almost the subject of many uh, meals in the evening about what has happened between leaving home and arriving back at home. People are impatient, they're frustrated, they're, they're anxious and angry. They're trying to get more out of 24 hours than is available. And because of that, they get frustrated very easily. This is the situation we're looking at here. How can brothers and sisters in God's family learn to get along and resolve their differences even when those differences seem so incredibly insurmountable? Church is really a microcosm of the world. We're a, a, a small collection of the world. And we of all people should know how to get through our problems and our difficulties. We should be able to step back and examine what we're expecting and demanding and see whether or not it is reasonable or unreasonable. We should be able to look at the problems and issues we have in such a circumspect way that we could see our own faults and learn to grow and mature. Yet, unfortunately, we're cut from the same cloth the world is. And we tend to fall back on that same fleshly idea. And I want to think about, as we look at this family, this, this husband and his two wives, and, and as they are growing, literally, the race of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel, and how they dealt with that. 
Here the root of the problem in Jacob's family is favoritism. That's very obvious. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. It started with his parents. His dad favored his brother. His mom favored him. Now Jacob favors one wife over the other. And later on, he's going to favor one son over all the rest. And those sons are going to take that brother out to kill. It has a way of repeating itself through the generations. Favoritism leads to nothing but trouble in Jacob's family. Look at what happens here. Leah, the unloved wife, is hurting deeply. You can see it in the name she gives her children. Reuben, which means God sees my misery. Simeon, which means God hears my cry. Levi, which means attached, because her dream was to be attached to her husband and not just simply around there to produce children. Judah means praise because she felt that she got no praise from her husband. Leah is a woman in pain. She's suffering greatly. She feels the humility. She sees the looks that Jacob has for her sister, but he does not have for her. This kind of thing hurts all of us. No one wants to be overlooked or underappreciated or neglected or ignored. But the problem in the flesh is this. When we are, we tend to over achieve or overbehave or overact in order to get that attention. We call it in, in, in pop psychology the middle child syndrome. Forgive me if you're a middle child, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. The one that wants to be recognized that's not in a family, and it's a frustrating thing. I've had parents tell me, oh, as a Christian, I treat all my children exactly the same. Please don't deceive yourself. That is, is absolutely and literally impossible. Number one, because some of your children need more attention than others. Their situation in life and their frustrations in life and their anxieties in life lead them to a situation where they need what I call EGR, extra grace required. They just need your attention. But you love all your children the problem is not how you love your children, it's how they perceive that they are loved and how you love the others. There's always been that situation. I had a woman in my church in, in Thomaston, Georgia one time who had several daughters, and she said, I figured out the way to be equitable in all things. She said, I would give my daughters one cookie, and, I would, and there'd be three of them there, and she'd say, she'd hand the knife to one of them and say, cut that cookie in three pieces so y'all can share. She said it would look like a laser had cut that cookie. There would not be any more in one than the other because they didn't want to share. The reality is this. We've got to learn to share and to give and to do for one another. Sometimes we start life wanting what someone else has and then at the end of life we see what they've gone through and we want to give back to them and love them. Why can't we begin that way? Why can't we begin loving and doing and giving to them? Because that's actually the situation that, that we need to understand we're put in in life. The fact is God shows more favor to the one who is less favored. 
and we need to remember that. Leah is the only one having children right now. And two of her children will head up two of the most important tribes of Israel. Levi, who will be the priestly tribe, and Judah, whose descendants will rule over the throne of Israel and will produce the Messiah himself. God loves the unloved. He cares about the neglected. He will be there for you when no one else is, and you need to realize that. Never get addicted to human love, support, and favor because there are times it won't be there. You will be neglected and overlooked at some of the most awkward times in your life, and God wants us to understand that if we have his love, we don't have to worry about anyone else. So we better be careful about showing favoritism because we could find ourselves opposing God. And as a result, we could find ourselves causing a lot of trouble, just like Jacob. We've got to learn to love one another and not to make judgment calls, not to bend one toward the other, just because, and, and I'll never forget, I've got a cousin, and the moment he was born, his granddaddy used to say, you look just like I did when I was a child. You remind me uh, of me. Now, I looked at pictures when he was a child. They didn't look anything alike. They didn't favor at all. I think that, that, that his granddaddy was, was, was you know, placing on him the, the desire, I want to be like you. That boy grew up and ended up leaving home after college and never came back. Very seldom did he call or write. Yet he had a sister who very seldom got noticed, who bathed and fed and took care of her grandparents until they died. She went to Georgia Tech, got a degree in pre-med because she said, I want to be prepared to take care of them one day. Realized she didn't want to be a doctor and ended up going to Emory University and got her degree in law. She's one of the top lawyers in Carroll County, Georgia now. I've never heard the family mention much about all that she's done. But in my eyes, she was an amazing lady. Never, never wanted anyone to praise her. Never wanted anyone to notice what she did. And, and I asked her one time, I said, Sally, why did you do all that for, for your grandparents? And she said, I don't know, I just felt inside that that was my obligation and my job. And she said, you know, I got such joy from it. Yet she received no accolades, not in this world, but in the next. Do we want to live in God's family with peace? Yes, absolutely. Controversy is not to be a part of the family of God. Stirring up trouble to get attention and, and pushing other people away is not something that should happen in the house of God. But do we want to overcome these differences that divide us? Are we willing to do what it takes to move away from that? Then God would say to all of us three things. Number one, don't look down on anyone in your family, ever. Whatever their situation, whatever their struggle, don't look down on them. You do not have the right to reject anyone that God has created. 
Let me repeat that again. You do not have the right to reject anyone that God has created. Don't despise those who've had tough times in life. Don't minimize their importance simply because they don't fit in what you have set as your external standards of beauty, intelligence, or strength. Henri Nouwen, one of the great philosophers and theologians of a, of a past generation, one of the world-renowned clergymen, a professor at both Harvard and Yale, in his later life retired but went to a community that worked with physical and mental and emotionally handicapped people. There he was very active in reaching out to folks, and there was a man in the mental hospital there named Trevor. Now, Trevor was quite a study. He had had severe mental and emotional challenges all of his life. He had been there all of his life, and Henri Nouwen wanted to reach out to him. The only way he could do it was the, the man that ran the hospital there, a very prominent psychiatrist, arranged for there to be a meal there because they all wanted to meet this great theologian and philosopher. They invited all the doctors that worked there and a lot of local celebrities, and when he walked into the room, guess who wasn't there? Trevor. In the midst of their pomp and circumstance, going into what they call the golden room, this huge banquet room there at the mental health facility, they did not invite Trevor. Dr. Nowen looked at the director and he said, where is Trevor? He's the reason I came. And they said, well, we don't allow uh, patients to eat with, with their doctors. Henri Nowen reached over and picked up his little brief and he said, then I'm leaving. Bye. They stopped him and they said, we'll make arrangements. They brought Trevor in a few minutes later and he stood out like a sore thumb. He was in his usual garb that he wore there. He was not shaven. He was just a little bit nervous. But when he walked in the room and he saw Henri Nowen, his eyes lit up. And Henri began to clap as he walked in the room. And everybody being polite to him, they clapped also. As they went through the process of the meal, at the end of the meal, when Henri was preparing to stand up and speak, Trevor looked up, and he saw what was happening, and he stood to his feet, and he picked up a glass he had, which happened to be Coke, and he held it up, and he said, You know, I want to propose a toast. I want to propose a toast to my friend. And everybody stood up and took their glass, not knowing what to do. And Trevor didn't know what to say after that because he had never been in a banquet before. He'd just seen it on TV. And he began to sing, If you're happy and you know it, drink your Coke. And he said it over and over and over till everybody in the room sang it. Henri Nouwen said that was one of the greatest moments of my life because suddenly those who had looked down on this man were being led by him and they learned something from him. For once in his life, he was not a patient stuck over in a corner. He was somebody. We can do that to people and it's frightening when we do it. We relegate them to a spot of, of inferiority. We put them aside and ignore them. None of us want to be in that place. 
But somehow in life we begin to practice that. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells us this. He said, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Humility is such an important component in the Christian life. If you've not acquired it, dear friend, I encourage you to look for it on your own, but don't pray for it. God will hit you between the eyes. He has a way of humbling all of us. Seek it, because that may be the missing part in your life that you need. The second thing I want you to realize is this. Don't look up in jealousy either. That was the problem between these two wives. They were jealous of one another. Now, I know Jacob created that jealousy, but I'm sure there was a spark of it before Jacob came along. Don't envy those who seem to be better off. Don't resent their fortune and covet what God has given them. That's what Rachel did. She became jealous of Leah, who was having children while she remained barren. You know, in life sometimes we get that way. I had a good friend when I was in the restaurant business. We, we became friends quite by accident. Edwin Bridges was an amazing man. He had been a speechwriter for seven governors of Georgia and three different U.S. senators. He won several Pulitzer Prizes for his writing. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt died at the, uh, the little White House in Warm Springs, he was summoned to Warm Springs, and they had the presidential train there. And Roosevelt was taken back to Washington in that train. His casket was laying in an open, glassed-in boxcar. And in the corners of it were the military guards that changed out every two hours that stood by his casket. And Ed Bridges sat there and recorded everything he saw. And he wrote an article for Look Magazine that took up the whole magazine, and it was called The Road Home. His accolades for that were remarkable. He had in his little retirement room in, in, the White, in, in the White House on Peachtree, the retirement community he lived in, he had plaques from all over the world that he had received for his writing, and especially writing that article. I remember sitting in his little apartment one day after we had had lunch, and we were talking, and it was, I was about 24 years old, and he was probably 80. And he looked at me and he said, Jerry, because I'd complimented him about his writing and he had helped me some in writing, he said, Jerry, I would give up everything I've ever received from every person in the writing for articles and speeches and books that I've ever done if I could just have peace within me. I've never had that peace. He said, I'm an alcoholic and I can't overcome this. He said, I lost my wife and my adopted daughter because of this, and I don't know what to do. And we prayed together. And I remember the frustration in his voice. 
Because he said, you see, I've been in a situation in life where I've been the one on the platform looking down at the audience. And he said, the truth of the matter is, I shouldn't even be in the audience. He said, I struggle with things that are tearing me apart. I'll be honest with you, at that age in my life, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to speak to this man who was, was so famous that we would go to eat and some of the most important people in Atlanta would come over and invite us to eat with them. But his life was one of struggle and sadness. One morning at about 4.30, I got a call. Before, it was before cell phones on my landline. And it was a state trooper calling me to inform me that they found Ed dead. He had taken his life. And on his dresser mirror, he had taped three letters, one to his ex-wife, one to his daughter, adopted daughter, and one to me. And they said, yours is the only one that had a phone number on it, so we're calling you first. And I had to go there, and they had removed his body, and the forensic people were in there. And the trooper said, will you please open the letter and read it? Maybe it can give us a clue as to what happened. And it literally reiterated to me what we had talked about several weeks before. The struggle that he had. Dear people, don't fight with your demons. Turn them over to God. Don't struggle with the things in life thinking that you're strong enough to overcome them. You're not. Sometimes people that look up in jealousy are struggling with issues that are greater than anyone has ever had before. And the only way they can get some sense of consolation is to think that they're a little bit better, a little more successful, that you've achieved a little bit more. And, and truthfully, that's meaningless. It's meaningless. Thirdly, I want you to think about this. Don't look within yourself when problems come and differences with your brothers and sisters and think that some way you can scheme your way through it. Don't trust your own plans to get your own way. Don't, don't plot to work it out. I have in this church listened to families plotting their way through something to make it work in their head rather than bowing their head and trusting God to give them the direction to do what's right. There is no formula to make things right in this world. Remember, this world's broken. It's been broken for a long time. It will continue to be broken. When you turn the news on, don't get upset that our world is falling apart. This 4th of July was, was absolutely smitten with sadness because we know that we're not one nation under God. We're several nations and we're divided. I came over here the other day to pray and I looked around me and I looked at all the beautiful stained glass pictures of Jesus all around here. These were made before the Civil War. I looked at this one that, that, that's marvelous. This stained glass window up here is so valuable it can't be insured. And I looked at these and I thought of the vitriol and hatred that's being expressed towards glass. 
A statement was made just a week and a half ago that, that all images of Jesus in churches should be destroyed. I grew up in a world where a church was a place that was respected. When I first learned to drive, my dad said, slow down going by church, even if they're not having a service out of respect for them. We never entered a church and talked. We were quiet and somber because we felt that this was God's house and we should respect it. Those days are gone. And it's so important for us to realize we can't fix this. This is the direction of the world. Jesus died not to save civilization, not even to save America. Jesus died to call a people unto his name. And if we're not busy doing that, you know what we're doing? We're doing somebody else's business, not God's. We don't need a running commentary about the culture collapsing in America. We know that. We don't need to share our opinion and frustration about it. We're all frustrated. What we need to do is not to be sidetracked with schemes and ideas of how we can fix what's broken. We need to be fast building his kingdom in the lives of our children and grandchildren and our neighbors and those that we interact with at church. Whoever we encounter, we need to reach out to them. The 14th verse of chapter 30 tells a little story that I thought was so funny. It said, during the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields to find some mandrake plants. And he brought them to Leah. Now, mandrake had a fruit on there that they believed, and it was not true, but they believed it could induce fertility. And in the midst of that, what Reuben had gathered, Rachel wanted. And they got into a little tussle about it. You see, even something as simple as that divided them. They didn't understand the importance of their unity as a family. Remember who they're building. There, there are 13 kids here, the, 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 the 12 boys and Dinah. They're building a nation. Yet they begin at odds with each other. The moms and the dad and the children. Before they're grown, 11 of the boys want to kill the 12th one, Joseph. And thankfully, one of the brothers says, no, let's just sell him as a slave. And God's hand was in that also. It's amazing how we scheme and try to make things work. And it never works. We've got to trust God. One of my favorite preachers to read is F.B. Meyer. He was pastoring in Christ Church in London. I've stood in that church before. And I thought about the life of F.B. Meyer and what he did. He was a humble man, even though he probably was the most prolific writer of his day. He was preaching one time there, and, and Charles Spurgeon was in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, not far from his church, and it was absolutely burgeoning with people. They had five services a day, uh, Sunday to, for everybody to get in and hear him preach. G. Campbell Morgan, who I love dearly too as a writer, preached at the Westminster Chapel, and he always had great crowds. Kings and queens wanted to hear him preach. But Meyer was preaching one Sunday, and this is what he said. 
He said, I find in my own ministry that supposing I pray for my own little flock, God bless me, God fill my pews, and God send a revival to my church. He said, I miss the blessing when I do that. He said, but as I pray for my big brother, Mr. Spurgeon, on the right-hand side of my church, God bless him, or my big brother on the other side, Campbell Morgan, and say, God bless him. He said, what's amazing is, as God blesses them, the overflow spills into my little church, and we are all blessed. I think F.B. Meyer figured out the secret to success as a Christian. We've got to love and care about one another. Churches are strange creatures, aren't they? I, when I came to Selma, I thought the only division here was, was between Auburn and Alabama. But it's not. Churches compete here. There's a jealousy between churches. I've never understood that. The reality is, as I told a pastor in, in a sister Baptist church here in town, I said, why are you so angry at us? I said, we're on the same team. When I played football in high school, our coach threw out the best quarterback we ever had one time, and he said, don't ever set foot on my field again. You know why he did it? He was jealous. He wanted to be the center of attention. And what Coach Gray taught me that day was this, because when we got back in the locker rooms, he said, fellas, I know y'all are hurt with me for doing that, but he said, let me tell you something. Division can never happen within this team. You have to function as one. If you don't, we will fail on every level. He said, I had to do something I've only done twice in my career. But he said, I'll do it again. Because unity is too important. Sibling rivalry is not of God, it's of the devil. But God has a way of, of drawing us through that and out of it and growing us up to what we need to be. From this point forward, First Baptist Church is going to face the roughest days of its life. Since 1842, we've lived through a lot of tough times and sadnesses and frustrations. But the America we're going forward in is one of the most frightening countries I've ever imagined. But remember this. We're the antidote. We're the cure. God put us here for a reason. And we've got to look on people with frustrations and anxieties and anger and frustration and bitterness. And we've got to love them and pray for them. Because we were sent to change them. And I pray that you're prepared to do that. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that in your holy word you give us hope. You don't discourage us, you encourage us. You remind us that when it gets dark, our redemption is coming near. You remind us that in the worst of times, you're the best for us. And we pray that we can have a heart like Simon Peter as he was in prison the night before he was to die. And he was asleep, resting because he trusted you. I thank you that we can be like the other apostles who had a focus on you that never wavered and that never differed. I pray that we can trust you in such a way that we will never be afraid. 
and that we will never be distracted. May jealousy and anger and frustration never become a part of our lives. Father, help us to be unified in a mighty way. And Lord, touch each and every person here. And Lord, if there's one here that they've not been in church for a while because of the coronavirus and they're just thankful to be back, I pray that this would be a time for them to come to the altar and just say a brief prayer of thanks to God that he's opening the door for us to be back. And if there's one here that just needs to come and say, I, I, need, to, I need to become stronger in my faith. I want to grow closer to you, Lord. I pray also that you would come to this altar and kneel and pray and find that safety and security and warmth that you only get from the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Father, speak to someone this morning that's struggling, that needs hope and help, and give them the compassion that only you can offer. For it's in your holy name we do pray. Amen.